let's assume that what I have spoken about, what I have thesis that I have advocated, namely that the question of the good life is a foundational question of human life, that great philosophies, religions are about the good life, that the question of the good life is not being sufficiently attended to in contemporary culture, maybe assume that we know, that each of us knows what the good life is, but the resources to reflect on the, that question are being not being nurtured. And let's assume also that the purpose of theology, the main function of theology, the public role also of theology is to bring into the public debate um, the vision of the good life that is inspired, not simply inspired by the Christian faith, but also that finds in Jesus Christ uh, the concrete embodiment. Um, what lies behind what I was trying to argue is that Jesus Christ is the key to humanity, to the good life. And uh, this may be the theological task that we have internal to Christian faith, but this may be also a witness that we need to bear in a larger public square. Now, once you come to the point of bearing witness of this sort in the public square, obviously then you face what I have described earlier as contending particular universalisms. Now that's a mouthful, you can put them like CPUs. <laughs> uh, I think that all great answers to the question of the good life are one or the other of the CPUs, contending particular universalisms. Now, this is the condition into which we are speaking uh, and bearing witness to Christian account of the good life. And I think it's very important for us to uh, think carefully about that condition. Right? And that's what I propose to do in this uh, last or, or the second lecture. So let me first um, take one of the, each one of these words that I have used, contending particular universalism, in its own uh, term. So Christian faith itself, in a pluralistic setting, ends up being one of such contending particular universalisms. Now we're not used to thinking in those terms. We're used to thinking, and often, especially the long history of Christian tradition, has taught us to think that Christian faith somehow uh, it's a Christendom model, that somehow Christian faith has a privileged place in the public domain. It's no longer the case. And any uh, longing toward the time when Christian faith will be kind of the dominant way of thinking about the world and aligning our uh, expectations in this regard, I think will just lead to disappointments or will lead to, I think, forms of misplaced engagement 
uh, and the kinds of really hard fundamentalisms that are a problem in the world in which we inhabit. So Christian faith along with Hinduism, Judaism in certain forms, Islam, is one of the contending particular universalisms. Some of these contending particular universalisms are secular nature. Say Nietzschean philosophy is one such. Um, certain forms of utilitarianism might be also such. Um, Marxism is such. Um, some of them are religious explicitly, like Christian faith or like Hinduism. For some of them, we're not sure what they are. For instance, Buddhism, it's not sure whether Buddhism is a, a religion or is it philosophy, Confucianism as well, right? And in many ways, it doesn't matter which one it is. We know that they all try to make valid, true claims about the nature of reality. They can offer mythological, metaphysical, or scientific explanations about the nature of reality. They all make claims about who the self is. Who am I? What is the nature of my relationships to others? And what is the good that I ought to pursue? And they all sketch also a vision of the good life that is aligned with the nature of reality, with the nature of the self, social relations, and the good. And they comprise sort of packages of this sort, if you want. Right. But it's important to keep in mind that these universalisms, though they are, they make a claim to, to be true, they're not closed systems. They can converse with one another. Each overlaps also with others. We often think of them as somehow completely self-enclosed balls, right? <laughs> they kind of bump against each other, but they don't overlap, and yet that's not quite right. In experiences that you have with people who think very differently than you do, you always find that there is a, a great deal of overlap. And I think sometimes in the Christian tradition, we make a mistake by zeroing in on differences and we forget about overlaps. As if only, what only matters is how we are different from somebody else, rather than also in what ways what we stand for overlaps with what others believe. And in many, whether that's, a, whether that's utilitarianism, whether that's Kantianism, whether that's Buddhism or Islam, the overlaps are actually very significant. And as I was trying to argue yesterday, I think we ought to rejoice over overlaps rather than somehow bemoan them. You know, there's a, there is an uh, early critic of Christianity, Celsus. Origen gives us a report about him. He was complaining that Christians are so much bent to be different than everybody else that if everybody else started believing became Christians, they would be something else, just to be different, <laughs> right? And though that's not quite true in my observation, but this kind of impulse to celebrate the difference rather than celebrate commonality is quite present. And yet these universalisms, they in significant way overlap. 
And each of these universalisms, Christian faith included, has been formed in the long history and continues to be shaped in mutual interactions with one another. Think about what happened in relationship between um, Christianity and Judaism. Or think about what happened to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in relationship to the Greek culture. We would not have the relationship of these three conversations of this year of the kind that we have, were it not that they started at a certain period of time, seeing themselves through the eyes of another universalism, Greek philosophy. Right. And so that these universalisms, it's important to keep in mind, they can be in conversation with one another. They can actually enrich one another. They can also shape one another. And so we are not condemned to live in a situation where we need to kind of fight, and I'll talk uh, about it a little bit later. But keep in mind also that all universalisms are particular. Now, you're going to be surprised by that. How can universalism be particular? And yet, that's exactly what it is. It seems like a paradox, but it is not. And that's rooted in the fact that human beings are creatures of time and space who make claims about the good life as creatures of time and place. And universalisms are particular on many levels. For instance, although the visions are universal, like Christian vision is a universal vision. Christian faith is true for all human beings. Islam's vision is universal. Islam, Muslims claim, is true for all human beings. But Christian faith, though the widest of all universalisms, most spread, widespread of all universalisms, encompasses maybe a third of human race, it's particular. It's not universal. It claims and has uh, aspirations to become universal, but nonetheless, it is particular. For instance, though each of these universalisms is transplantable, that's why it's universalism, right? Because it's meant to be for each situ different situation, it's transplantable to many places. And yet, when it's transplanted, it always takes on particular flavor. Christianity in Australia is not the same as Christianity in Africa. And that's not accident. It's rooted in the fact that Christianity, when it takes root, it takes root in a particular culture with creatures of time and of place. Now, which means that, if they're particular, which means that, as I've noted earlier, that along with other universalism, Christian faith is also mutable. Now, you might say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which is absolutely true, right? But Christian faith is not the same today and yesterday, as yesterday, as it will be in the future. And there's a very good reason for that. Okay, because times are not the same. You know, I've come to like the um, statement that I first read in one of the Muslim mystics, Ibn Arabi. And he applied the kind of question of the, the, this difference that time brings 
to the reading of sacred text. In his case, it was Quran. I can apply it to reading of the, of the Bible. He said, if you read the same scripture, the same text, in the same way two times, you've read it wrongly. Now, you might be inclined to say, if you read the same scripture differently at two different times, you might have read it once wrongly, right? <laughs> you must have read it wrongly at least once, because you should be reading the scripture, the same scripture should mean the same thing, and yet it doesn't. And why doesn't it mean the same thing? Why should it not mean the same thing? The reason is very simple, and that is that you are not the same. Heraclitus, philosopher, has said you can never step in the same river twice. You can never step in the same scriptural verse twice. <laughs> not because it's wrong, not because it's somehow malleable to you, but because God speaks to you in the particularity of the situation in which you find yourself. So that Christian faith in this way is also a very much a particular thing. Um, one way to think and to apply this to the question of the good life, which is what I was trying to articulate earlier, is simply to say, so what is, how is the good life which is Jesus Christ, as you recall, that I said, how is it lived concretely by each uh, human being? Well, it's lived not simply that you look at Jesus Christ and just do what Christ did, right? Sometimes we, we encourage ourselves to do as Christ did. But we never, in fact, do, right? You don't transport yourself in the way uh, he did, you drive cars, and by driving cars, you know, you can name all sorts of ways in which you never act as Jesus Christ did. And actually, you're not supposed to. It's the Holy Spirit that is supposed to, that particularizes the way of Jesus Christ to your circumstances. Put differently, you can be faithful to Christ only if you're faithful in your specific situation and in your specific way, so that the good life that is lived is modeled in some ways on Jesus Christ, but that model always becomes particular in particular circumstances. So that we, we can put it this way, why did Jesus say that he was not just the truth, but the way and the life? Jesus Christ is life, not abstract truth, not abstract model that you can see here and then simply apply, but rather you know Christ in the way of following Christ as a living organism. And Christ is truth only in this particularizing way in which we follow Christ. So that the, there are many ways to live, put it differently, Christian life as the good life. And this is a good thing to be celebrated. Many Christians think that Christian faith is an absolute religion. And from what I've said so far, you will expect me to say that it absolutely isn't true. <laughs> 
There's one who is absolute, and that's God. But your and my grasp of God is always limited, is always particular. And in fact, your grasp of God, even when it's true, is not the same 20 years uh, uh, as it was 20 years ago. So you've got this movement in your own deepening understanding, and that's why we need to keep in mind that our universal claims are always particular. Now that brings a certain kind of modesty into claims that we make. And I often think that in this pluralistic situation in which we find ourselves, we either, we kind of, we, we go either the direction where we simply say, well, all religions are the same in any case, right? And then it doesn't matter what you do. Or we have these hard boundaries and we say, this is only and absolutely true and it never changes and everything else is false. And if we have a much more supple sense of who we are as particular people, then we'll be able to appreciate both the truth of the faith that we have and also our ability to learn from others and learn in the process in which we find ourselves as human beings in history. Uh, then the boundaries that we will have will be soft boundaries. I've uh, written a little article, it's called entitled Soft Difference. Now, difference is important. If you don't have difference, you don't have identity. You can't be a Christian without being different from somebody else, from those who are not Christians. But you don't have to have hard edge boundaries. Hard edge boundaries so that you cannot take anything from others into yourself and celebrate that, so that you cannot transport something to somebody, somebody else so that they can embrace it as well. The porousness of the boundaries is one of the, I think, fundamental features of us as temporal human beings and created as such um, and created as good to be precisely in such uh, interchange of learning, which means that you can learn from non-Christians. Uh, Paul Tillich, not quite an evangelical, I know, uh, spoke of reverse prophetism. And there is such a thing as reverse prophetism, where you learn something that you didn't know from those who are outside. You think of something? You think of all sorts of things we can name, right? Where all, though Christ is the key to all the wisdom. All truth is God's truth. Nonetheless, what I know is significantly limited and I can learn from Christ's truth that is outside from the sphere in which I find myself. So that's what I mean, but that universalism, Christian universalism too, is particular. You understand what I mean, universalism? I'm not talking about who's gonna be saved, right? I'm talking about different universalism now. That's universalism in terms of universal claims to truth. That is that Christian faith is meant and is understand itself as being true from everyone. I'm not talking about who's gonna be saved right now, just to make, make sure. So Christian faith is universalist 
in this sense, right, applies to all human beings, so are also other ways of construing the good life. And Christian faith is particular universalism as well. That is to say, always in given time and given space. But also these universalisms, and this is an important thing to keep in mind, aren't merely sitting next to each other like in an ice cream shop. You have different flavors of ice cream, right? They're just sitting there, one next to each other, right? And the customer comes and give me a mixture of those different flavors of ice cream. It's not that this particular universalism of which Christian faith is one are sitting like that next to each other, right? But it's also not the case that they're like billiard balls. As soon as you move one and, uh, and one comes into contact with the next one, the next one runs away, right? And they come ping and it goes all in different directions, right? They cannot occupy in any way the same space because they're completely closed. Which would, which would mean, well, these different uh, billiard balls, if Christian faith was such, or if other contending uh, universalisms were, were such, there would be the only thing that would be possible would be kind of violent clashes between them. They could never live peacefully in the common space. But there are what I described here as contending. If you make a claim to truth, you are saying that somebody else's claim to truth is not quite as true as yours. <laughs> At least you're saying that much. You're denying something, and therefore you're making a certain space, claiming a certain, certain space. You're contesting other positions intellectually. And you are also, if you embrace Christian faith as a way of life, you're also a kind of jostling with others for power in the common space. There's no way of avoiding this kind of contention among universalisms. And sometimes we think we can find, we can have a non-conflictual society. Of course, I don't know uh, uh, about your marriages uh, and your family life. Uh, siblings fight sometimes more than people who are strangers to one another. Husbands and wives uh, fight uh, so that even the non-universalisms, like we have a conflictual relationships. And it's all, not always all bad, right? But if you have especially claims to universal truth, they will be contending. They will be spaces of debate, spaces of push and shove, spaces in which uh, we bear witness to what we believe is the case. Uh, and I think the way in which we have to then approach this is to ask, well, what are the ways in which we can manage, manage well pluralism of this sort? And this is the situation in which we find ourselves. We have to find ways in which we can manage plurality. When Christians think that they somehow have to occupy that space and push out simply everybody out of the space, obviously the problems arise. When secularist thinks that they have to push everybody else out of the common space, obviously problems arise. And so we have to avoid both this if you want secular exclusivism and religious totalitarianism, 
one religion dominating the entire space or a religion dominating the entire space. That's the way in which, that's the only way, I think, in which we can uh, figure out how to manage plurality of contending universalisms. That's part of our need to assert, so, so the part of our need to assert the vision of the good life has to include the way in which we can manage the situation of uh, plurality. So, how do we manage the situation of plurality? I think there's a kind of political side to the question, which is to say the fostering of societies which understand themselves as pluralistic democracies. There are certain political arrangements that need to be the case, and there are certain cultural sensibilities that we need to um, nurture. And the question is, is Christian faith ready for truly pluralistic democracy? Now, most religions were actually uh, including Islam. Islam is the, is the big issue, right? Uh, I'm sure it's a big issue in uh, Australia, but worldwide. Uh, just like uh, Islam has no problems with democracy. In fact, if you look at the public opinion uh, worldwide, um, you will see Muslim, in Muslim countries, you will see that, that Muslims are overwhelming, overwhelmingly for democracy. You will see also that Christians are overwhelmingly for democracy. What's difficult for both Muslims and Christians, actually what's difficult for both Muslims, Christians and seculars, is pluralistic form of democracy. <laughs> pluralism is what's difficult. Not pluralism of there being plurality of people, but pluralism of the, pluralism of the worldviews integrated into common political uh, system. And I think that's the essential um, ingredient for the management of, uh, of uh, contending universalisms. To have a cultural, uh, to have a, to the cultures that are hospitable to, and political systems that are hospitable to pluralism. Now that means designing new philosoph political philosophies, and there are a number of important philosophers, uh, I don't know how much Nick Walterstoff is read in Australia, especially his political philosophy. That's a very important work that needs, to, uh, that needs to happen and that he is doing. But also, there's a work that each of the religions has to do internally within itself. It's no accident that I have mentioned that many Christians have a problem with pluralistic democracy. Now, everybody who longs, for instance, the United States, after Christian America, and who tries to design a system, political system, so that Christian America would become the reality, obviously doesn't think that political pluralism is the way that Christians ought to go. Democracy, yes, but not pluralistic democracy. Now, my sense is that there are no such things as Christian nations. They're Christian people. They're Christian communities but entire political entities are not Christians. Now, that's a controversial position, of course. It's a controversial position because for the long centuries, we spoke about Christian, say, Europe. We spoke about Christian civilization. Uh, we spoke, therefore, also about Christian political order.
Um, my sense is that this is for many reasons a deeply problematic position and that from the resources of the Christian faith itself uh, we ought to argue for much more pluralistic um, account of political society. Now people sometimes say if you don't have a Christian political order then we withdraw from politics, right? We withdraw from engagement in political societies. I think that's also um, not necessary. We need not be sectarian if we are not totalitarian, right? <laughs> it's not, we don't have a choice between totalitarianism and sectarianism. We can be engaged and engaged out of Christian resources in a politically pluralistic way. And more we nurture this culture and our mentality that we have a voice and grant equal voice to others, the more able we will be to manage um, contending particular universalisms. Now that involves also, I believe, a pedagogical and intellectual side. There's a pedagogical intellectual uh, side of the challenge. And maybe the best way to describe what I mean by this is to describe to you very briefly a course that I and some of my colleagues teach at Yale. I have designed that course together with a student of mine. Um, and we teach it um, not to the Divinity School students, but to general college students. Most of our students who take this class are, come from different religions, no religion at all. And generally, we try to choose the students because they apply for the course. We try to choose students that come from different uh, intellectual and religious uh, backgrounds. And the course, name of the course is Life Worth Living. And what we do in this course is we take um, six, seven um, accounts of life worth living that are represented by great religions and secular philosophies. So we would have, uh, say, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Uh, we might have, we have utilitarianism, say, Nietzscheanism. So we take these six. And we don't study these simply as religions and philosophies. The course is not introduction into uh, religions, these four religions or philosophies, because you can't introduce the course in a single course, these religions. We ask some very, we read original texts from these, uh, from these uh, philosophers or founders of religions, and then we ask very simple questions of each one of them. And they have to do with this philosophy and religion as a way of life, as a good life, as making proposal or claim to truth about what the good life is. So we ask uh, students to answer the question, what does it mean according to this philosopher, this founder of religion, for life to be led well? What does it mean for life to go well? What does it mean for life to feel good, right? Remember these three formal features. What reasons does this religion or this founder give you to live a life like this? What motivations do you get? Um, what helps do they provide for you? Now you can have, you can agree with the vision, particular vision. You can think that, that you have really good reasons to follow this vision, 
but you may find yourself in a position where you don't have enough strength, power, motivation, whatever it is, to live that way. You need a kind of a help to live that way, right? In Christian faith, that might be certain spiritual practices, or it might be the power of the Holy Spirit that helps you live a life in that way. Um, then we ask the question, what happens when you fail? You can have a vision, you can have a motivation for reasons for it, you can have also helps, but you might also fail. What happens then? Nothing? How, how do you get back to the right course? And what has happened with this life that you've lived that wasn't quite on the right course? In a Christian faith, it is repentance, confession of sins, right? Returning back to the, to the way, right? Forgiveness becomes a very important part. And then finally, we ask the question, so to whom are you responsible? To yourself? To your community? To God? To all three? Who are you responsible to? And then we ask the students not just to take these six or whatever number we use as suggestions, as preferences that some people have for one or the other, as these, as I said, different flavors of ice cream sitting next to each other, and today you might uh, like to do some fruity ice creams, and tomorrow you'll have chocolate once, and the other day you'll have with nuts, and then you kind of go through it, meander through life, right? No, they make claims to truth. Each one of them does. And so we ask them in the classroom to treat them as making claims to truth, which is to say, to argue with them, to contend with them. They contend with each other. Now, when you read them, contend with them. Each one that you read, argue with it. Tell me why do you think that's true, why it's wrong, what's, how, how would you make a stance as if it makes claim upon your life? In fact, uh, in the course of the, uh, a particular discussion of uh, a thinker of a text, toward the end, we always maybe last 20 minutes, we ask a simple question, how would your life have to change if this position philosophy were true? And so we have an atheist who is engaging a Buddhism, and then you would have to imagine himself or herself in the position, and what would it claim from, on, on part of them, from them in terms of change and transformation of, of life. Um, assignments that we give to students is to um, analyze first, what is it that when you come to Yale, what does Yale University think the good life is? If you listen to, say, speeches by presidents, uh, and we give them some, uh, some uh, access to the speeches of presidents, or if you read the materials about Yale, what kind of vision of good life, or if you talk to your parents, you know, who tried to persuade you, could you go to Yale, what were they trying to sell you? Why should you come to Yale? What would happen to you? How would your life be changed, improved? Where you would be heading? So that's our first assignment. The second assignment is what do your friends, your peers, uh, with whom you live in your dorm rooms, what do they think is the good life? And the third and final assignment is they have to sketch their own account of what do you think is the good life as you have now gone through these discussions 
and you've seen them, you've engaged them, how would you construct your way of life? It's very fascinating what students come up with. It's very fascinating also how difficult it is for them. Um, suddenly they realize, oh, I have to think about how everything fits together. <laughs> so somehow this is my life that is now at stake. Here I'm going to sketch the vision of the good toward which I'm striving, and I have to take it with this utter seriousness, and I see all these different voices that are coming, and you see them scrambling. I would spend sometimes an hour with a student who brings all together the stuff that they've studied and try to figure out how do I put, so to speak, my life together. Um, the challenge that they are facing is suddenly there are these claims that come at me and I need to engage them in a kind of existential way, but engage them as making truth claims. Right? And I think that's the kind of situation, uh, in a sense, what, what I'm trying to do also in this class is to school students for public discussions. The kind of contentions that we have in the classroom, and basically I tell the students in the classroom, what I want you to do is to be reasoned and reasonable and respectful. No insults are allowed to anybody. Reason with them and respect and open to learning. And that's, in a sense, becomes a school of what must happen, what happens not just in the classroom, but what happens in the larger political society. But you see what, what, we have, what, what I have done? I have assumed that these are particular, that they're universalisms, and that they're contending. And if you have a pluralistic situation of this sort, then I think you can come to the fruitful debate uh, between people and also, in many ways, between those worldviews. By the way, we take them also to a retreat. We take them 24 hours um, away and then have exercises with students of this sort. And those are the most significant times that they spend with us. And I would have thought that uh, they might not be quite possible to do at a major university to teach a class like this. I didn't ask anybody whether it's possible or not, we just did it. And uh, students have kind of voted uh, very cheerfully in favor of the class uh, of this sort because they're hungry. They're hungry for something that actually makes a claim uh, to, their, to their lives. I'm doing this as a Christian now. Right? And some of my more conservative Christian friends have said, well, well how, how do you do that? Why do you do that? Why don't you just tell them what Christian faith says? And I said, I have an interest as a Christian for them to take seriously their own attitude and truth claims that variety of position makes upon them and to make their response in an honest and open and informed way. This is my Christian interest. This is not simply kind of a Trojan horse uh, through which I want to uh, kind of get inside them so that they would all embrace the Christian faith. If they embrace the Christian faith, that's great. That's an open position that they have. I tell them I'm a Christian. A friend of mine who teaches with me says uh, we are Christians, but I also have a responsibility as a teacher to be a fair broker of the conversation. Now, for me, the reason why I'm telling you this is that for me, this is an illustration of the position that Christians ought to have 
in the political society as well. We have interest in the debate being, being carried on in an open and forthright way so that every voice can be heard. This is a Christian value which we stand for as Christians. Uh, and therefore, we have interest in honestly brokering the discussion. Why do I do that? Because I believe that Christ is the key to human flourishing. And I believe that Christ is the light which enlightens everyone. I, in a sense, trust the power of the truth, which is in Christ, that will lead people to where they need to be. I can't force them to come into to anything. I can mani cannot manipulate them, do not want to manipulate them into anything. I want to open the space for them in which they can freely consider the claims of Jesus Christ as they consider them in the light of all different competing uh, philosophies that are available. Now, for me, that's a, a sense model of the political society in which we find ourselves. Um, that's, for some of my friends, that's a very strange way of doing things. And the, the criticism that we get come from two sides. One side is that I already mentioned, which is why aren't you much more aggressively Christian in this situation? The other side uh, is what are these things about truth claims that these different religions make? Aren't they all the same in any case, right? So you don't have to worry so much about the truth claims that they make. They're all irrational in any case. In other words, I have secular exclusivists who are telling me from the other side, you don't need to take this stuff seriously at all because those religions are all irrational in any case. They can make claims to truth, but they have no, there's no truth in them. And so from two sides, in a sense, you have the position. And the similar kind of pressure you find in the political systems more generally, right? You have secularists who say, why would you pay attention to what religious people from whatever side say because they're simply unreasonable. Religions are irrational, therefore we ought not to pay attention to them. Or from the other side, you say, well, no, no, all other religions except ours are unreasonable, right? Therefore, we ought to leave all of them out from the public debate, but only secure the strong voice for ourselves. And um, I think the good argument can be made that on Christian grounds, that we need to open up the space so that each person can freely either embrace or reject a way of life. Now that's what, for me, the contending particular universalisms, how they need to be managed in a situation today. Um, let me just say one more thing um, about kind of the objection to the position that I have now uh, developed, and then I'll open it up for discussion. Um, there, there's quite a widespread sense that anytime we try to formulate a positive vision of the good life, we are stepping on somebody's toes. We are excluding somebody. Right? So that any positive vision of the good life is already suspect. 
Why would you have a positive vision of the good life? Uh, because everybody has their own authentic way of living the good life. The good life is simply everybody authentically being what they need to be or what they want to be at the particular, uh, particular time. There are even those who say that any positive statements about the good life are inimical to life. They choke life, right? When we have positive statements, they're never sufficiently respectful for the diversity of life that we are. Nietzsche is a very famous for making this kind of an argument. Any truth claims about the good life, uh, that's already choking the kind of vibrancy and vitality of life itself. Or it can be seen in terms of exclusivism, you exclude other people. And the argument I think that we need to make is that every account, every way in which you argue people ought to live, every even account of a life that you make your own choices, ought to have right to make your own authentic choices about your life, presumes a positive formulation of who you are as a human being and how we ought to live. It presumes, for instance, autonomy. That you have autonomy, ought to have autonomy to make your choices. Now, that's a positive value. That's not just a kind of negative, uh, negative thing. Or, as Michel Foucault has argued also, even autonomous self has been crafted. Autonomous self, we are not born autonomous selves. We are crafted into autonomous selves in the, under the conditions in which we live. So the positive visions actually are inescapable. The question is, how do we formulate the positive visions? How open we are for the discussion? how truthful we are in formulating positive visions of the good life. So my invitation in the public debate is for Christians, articulate a positive vision of the good life. Be ready to learn from others. Be ready to hear others' vision of the good life, but be ready also to defend the position that you have. Don't assume that you'll necessarily agree, but assume that you can learn and assume the times that, you can, that we can create spaces in which we can live with the modicum of civility and peace with one another. Now, I don't expect the paradise of uh, contending particular universalism, like uh, everybody's just cheerfully agreeing with everybody uh, all the time. I expect a certain kind of contentiousness. In my classroom, there's contention, kind of, I make sure that it doesn't <laughs> blow up, right? But the contentiousness is there, which is part and parcel of human life and parcel, parcel, part and parcel of learning to live together as human beings. So, vision of good life is, I think, what the primary contribution of the Christian faith ought to be to the contemporary debates. Out of that vision, a variety of particular issues can be, of course, taken and addressed, but they will be not addressed adequately without having the grand vision of a life that is led well, that goes well, that feels well, informed by the Christian faith, and brought to bear upon variety of issues.
that we face today.